The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au reading from Acts chapter 5, reading from verses 12 to 42. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so they brought, um, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by, uh, by might fail on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which uh, and they were filled with indignation, and and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in um, common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of, of, of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to them have um, sent to the prison to have them brought and when the officers came and did not find them in prison they returned and reported saying indeed we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors but when we opened them we found no one inside now when the high priest the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things they wondered what the outcome would be so one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And you look, and you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intended to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and saviour, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. 
And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, leave them alone. For this plan or this work is of men. It will come to nothing. But if it is of God, <clears throat> you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him, and then they called for the apostles and beaten them. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, again as we come before your word with it open before us, Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would teach us and lead us into all truth. Challenge our hearts, rebuke us, encourage us, and comfort us. Strengthen us through your word and revive us according to your word, we pray. Oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. God is still at work. There is nothing that can hinder God from doing his work. The book of Acts describes Christ's continuing work through the apostles by the power of his Holy Spirit working in them. Christ sent the Spirit to fill and empower them. Christ was at work at Pentecost when Peter preached his message. Christ was working when Peter stretched out his hand to heal the lame man. Christ was at work through his spirit in taking the lives of Ananias and Sapphira in judgment. Christ is still at work in his church then and still today. And I want us to see from this text, this passage, that the ongoing work, and I want us to see how no opposition raised by any man or any government, for that matter, can ever stop it. And what we're going to do is we're just going to work our way through a, a long passage. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. And although it won't be any great detail, and what we're going to do at the end of that is we're going to draw some lessons and some conclusions from it. So first of all, I want you to see that God works through his church. If you have your uh, the bulletin there, there is a note sheet that you can follow along inside that bulletin. I want you to see, first of all, that God works within his church. And in that first paragraph, there's several evidences given. We're just going to skim across them and notice a few things about them and move on. So, first of all, God works with his church and God is working to perform signs and wonders. If you notice in verse 12 and then verses 15 and 16, he says that signs and wonders were done by the apostles' hands and that sick were laid out so Peter's shadow might fall on them and those were healed. People gathered from every town bringing sick and demon afflicted and they were healed as Peter walked by and his shadow fell on them. Luke has already twice told us earlier in the book that God was doing the one doing those things. God was at work doing signs and wonders. God was busy validating the message of the apostles with those signs and wonders. Can God perform signs and wonders today? And the answer, of course, you have to say is yes, God can. Does he do it? When and where does God do those signs and wonders? And the answer to that simply is when and where he chooses, not other. 
God cannot be manipulated and forced. He cannot be pushed into doing something by force of great prayer. It's God's choice. He does those when and where he chooses. Should we go looking for signs and wonders? Absolutely not. Why? You say, well, Jesus himself said a wicked and adulterous generation goes looking for signs and wonders. We don't want to go looking for those things. But when we happen, when they do happen, and the rare occasions that do, we recognize them for what they are, and we give thanks to God, and then we move on. Because God's work is done primarily through spirit-filled believers who are living in faith and obedience to the Lord and repentance of sin. We don't go looking for them. Rather, we look to serve the Lord without signs and wonders accompanying. We have the completed word of God before us to testify and validate our message. Those around us can pick up the word of God and look and see like you should do on a regular basis to see if the things that Nelson said actually are true. They're actually in the word of God. You should check them out. But God validated the works and the words, sorry, of the apostles through those signs and wonders back then. Secondly, God works to give and preserve unity among the church. Notice in verse 13, he says that they were all together in Solomon's porch. God gave them the unity of the Holy Spirit in the Lord Jesus Christ. God instilled in them a longing and a desire to be together. They couldn't wait as they got up each day and finished their work to go to Solomon's porch and there be together as God's people. They had a longing and a desire as God's church, as Christ's body, as the building of God. They were together in Solomon's portico for worship. As they gathered there, they would sing songs and and one would preach and they would read the scriptures. I read an account uh, that dates back to the wasn't the temple times, beyond the temple times, that those early church services, they only had a few copies of scrolls, and scrolls of the books of the Bible were so expensive and so rare that if anybody had one, they would bring it, and somebody would stand up like Ben just did, and he would read through that text. And he wouldn't read just for about seven minutes or eight minutes like Ben did. He'd read for two or three hours. And then when he was finished, somebody else would get up and they would make an exposition on the text that had been read. Right. So that was part of their worship. They gathered to pray and sing and read the scriptures together. They were there for teaching and preaching. They were together in the Solomon's porch to make testimony to Christ's life and death and resurrection. They gave a witness to Christ's soon return and power and glory. They had a desire to be together. There was a unity among that early church. And listen, that unity does not come about by the workings of man. It comes about as God draws people together, as sin is confessed, as the old nature is put off and the new nature is put on, and God makes us more like Christ. If you think about it, it's like a triangle. And Christ is at the very top. And the more he makes me like Christ, and the more he makes you like Christ, you know what's happening? We're getting closer and closer together. There's a unity as sin is put off, and we become more like the one person that we are all following, the Lord Jesus. Thirdly, God works to preserve his church. In verse 13, it says that none dared join them. Following the scene in the, in the previous verses and Ananias and Sapphira and the judgment that God poured out on those people and their lives were taken. And there was a fear that came across all those people. And I can imagine that there were others who were looking on 
And perhaps they'd seen the notoriety and all the things that were happening in that early church. And they were thinking, there's a group of people to hang out with. There's a group of people that are enjoying such joy and freedom. We'll just go along with them. And all of a sudden, Adonias and Sapphira suffer that judgment. And the realization is that this is something very holy. You don't just go and join them willy-nilly and spend time with a nice group of people. You go and join, as we see in a second, as the Lord adds to the number the believers. God is working to preserve the purity of his church through judgment. Fourthly, God works to add believers to the church. Notice in verse 14, it's what he says. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multiples, uh, multitudes of both men and women. God was saving and adding as and when he chose to. God is the one who opens hearts and minds of listeners to grasp the gospel. God is the one who makes dead people live. God is the one who imparts the faith to believe. And as we see from this passage later on, he's the one who gives repentance and he gives forgiveness of sins. It's God who is the one who declares over a person's life that this person is right and justified in my sight. God is the one who fills the believer with his Holy Spirit. God alone adds the believer in Christ to his universal church. God works to save the lost and build his church. God was working back in 33 AD and God is still working today to build his church. When we go out and we preach the gospel, we hand out gospel tracts. In some senses, you say you want to have a good presentation. You want to have a really clear, you want to do a a nice presentation of the gospel. But the reality is that we present the gospel in its entirety. And unless God is working in that person's life, they will not accept it and they will not like it. Because the gospel is fundamentally a confronting, difficult thing for us to hear. You're a sinner God's wrath is falling, but Christ saves. That's the gospel message. It's God is the one who saves, and God is the one who adds believers to his church. God was working then, and God is still working today. You're going to hear about a little bit of that work tonight as Peter comes and shares his testimony. The second main point is this, that God intervenes. I want you to notice verses 17 to the first half of verse 21. It says the high priest rose up and all who were with him. That is the party of the Sadducees and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand and speak in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. God works to intervene against jealous men's evil intentions. In the first century Judaism, the priests, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin were the most respected people in all of Judaism. The Pharisees were highly regarded by the people. You may notice up in verse 13, notice what it says there. None of the rest joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. Up until the time of the church and the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Pharisees were held in very high esteem by all the rest of Judaism. 
They were highly regarded for their brilliant memorizing of both the scriptures and the rabbi's sayings. Most Pharisees had memorized the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and some of them went on to memorize at different times a vast bulk of the Old Testament. These men had incredible minds. They memorized what the rabbis had said about those texts. They were highly regarded for their long robes, for their long phylacteries. Everybody here know what a phylactery is? No? Tell me. Okay, I'll tell you what it is. It's like a little wooden box, and they've got, in the Old Testament it says, to bind the word of God on your hand and your forehead. So what they would do is take a little wooden box and a little tiny fragment of papyrus, and they would have a little bit of the word of God written on that piece of papyrus, and a little wooden box of long like uh, ropes or, or leather thongs on it, and they would tie it in the back of the hand and wrap it all the way right up to their arm, their shoulder, just about. And they'd take the other one, and they'd put their head, and they'd tie it around their head, and they would bind their phylacteries. And they said that the, the mark of a very righteous man was he had long phylacteries. So these Pharisees went around with these things tied on their arm and their forehead. They completely missed the point of the text, but they got that picture part right. And so they were highly regarded for their long phylacteries, for their long, well-rehearsed and well-spoken prayers. The people regarded them highly. For their extravagant public giving of alms to the poor, the people regarded them highly. For their fastidious keeping of the law and all the other laws they added on to the back of the, the law of the word of God, the people regard them. These are holy men. These are righteous men. These are men to be followed as an example. And all of a sudden now all the people's attention is turned away from the Pharisees onto these roughshod Galilean tradies who are out there preaching in the name of Jesus. And of course, what's it say? They were filled with jealousy. Jealousy can do a lot of damage. Pride drives jealousy. These men were highly regarded, but now there's something new going on. This carpenter rabbi from Nazareth had stolen their limelight. This carpenter rabbi who repeatedly bested them in public debate and discussion. You read through the Gospels. Over and over again, the Pharisees come with some new angle to try and get at Jesus. And over and over again, it's almost comical. Jesus just responds in a few sentences and he takes away all their arguments. And again and again, he defeats them in his discussion. This carpenter rabbi who healed the sick and cast out demons. This carpenter rabbi who overturned temple tables. This one whom they had conspired and paid Judas to betray him, and from them to the Romans, this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth simply refused to go away. And here he is again. They're hearing out preaching in Jesus' name. they just gotten rid of him. And now all of a sudden, more is happening. And you can see the frustration in these guys. They're filled with jealousy. They're frustrated because of what's happening. So what do they do? They take him and they put them in the public prison, leave them there overnight. But you know what? God is still in control. God is still at work. Why God put them in the prison? He could have kept them from the prison, but he put them in there. And he's going to show those Sanhedrin, you're not in control anymore. You never were in control. I'm still in control of this situation. And they put them in the prison. And what happens? The angel of the Lord comes. He opens the doors. He brings them out. And he gives them this great command. You go and you stand in the temple courts 
and speak to the people all of the words of this life. And now I got to admit, if, if that would be me, one of the apostles, I would have been saying, yeah, go is a good idea. Let's go far away and we'll keep preaching somewhere else. But no, the angel of the Lord says, no, no, you go and you stand right in the temple courts and you keep preaching. And they knew the next morning when the Sanhedrin gathered, do you know where they gathered? They gathered in a part of Solomon's porch. So there they are preaching in the courts and just a little ways away, the Sanhedrin's going to gather. And of course, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be trouble. But they go, and as the dawn breaks, as the, as the sun rises across, and the first sacrifice of the day is being offered, and the priests are rousing and going about their duties, these men are standing there in the dawn, the breaking day, and they're preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. They come, they enter, and they preach. God intervenes. When God intervenes, prison doors are no barrier whatsoever. When God intervenes, he does so in his time and for his reasons and for his glory. When God intervenes, he does not always do it when we think or when we wish he would, right? How many times have you gone before the Lord and you've prayed and you've cried out to God for something to happen and there's a timeline in the back of your mind. You know exactly when the Lord should do this and the Lord waits to his own time to do it. You say, why does God wait? Because God has a purpose. God has clear reasons in the lives of the Sanhedrin, the lives of the apostles, the lives of the early church, and he has clear reasons in your life and mine for when he intervenes and when he waits. And the ultimate reason of all that is for the glory of his own name. I want you to notice thirdly in the third paragraph from 21 and the second half of verse 21 all the way down to verse 26, God laughs. Now you say, that's an odd title for a paragraph. But as I read this story and I was sitting in our home and Heather was sitting across from me and she was doing her transcription work and I was sitting there and I just, I just started to laugh. I mean, the story is funny. They put him in jail, you know, and, and we'll see in a second. But I thought it was interesting that as Psalm 2, when we read, you know what it says in Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What does that mean? Well, he's talking, the psalmist is talking about the kings of the earth, the Romans and the Jews, gathering themselves together against the Lord's anointed. Who is that? Well, Jesus, clearly, right? But you know what? You and I have the Spirit of God in us if we are true believers in Christ, which means we have been anointed, and in another sense, a smaller sense, and a plural sense, we are also the Lord's anointed. Second thing to remember is this. Every action that the world or an unbeliever takes against you for your stand as a Christian is not only taken against you, it is also taken against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because he's acting against the gospel, against the scriptures. But what does God do? He laughs. What folly. Who do you think you are acting against my people? I'm in control. I think it was a sense of a smile on his face that the angel of the Lord came down 
and flicked open the door without even waking the guards who were standing right there and lets them all go out. And they all go out, and he says, go and stand and preach. And as they're all there, they're outside preaching. And in, in one spot, they're preaching. And just a short distance away, as the scene describes, uh, the high priest comes in, and all those come in with them. And I can just picture these guys as they arrive, their phylacteries, their robes, their fineries, all their ornaments, and they ascend up into the, the courts of the Sanhedrin, and they all settle themselves in their seats, and they adjust all their robes, and they get everything just so, you know, like a court in a courtroom, a judge in a courtroom. And then they send to the, the uh, temple guard, and they say, go and gather, go and get those uh, guys from the prison. And the guards, and I, I'm sorry, but when I read that story, all I could think of was, was the Keystone Cops. Who here remembers the Keystone Cops? I see some old hands go up. A couple of you remember the old black and white movies, you know? The cops in those cars and they corner and people would fall off and it was just comical. And I can see these guards going down to the jail and they're walking along and they get to the jail, they get the keys out and they put the key in the lock and they open the door and one guy goes in. You don't hear anything. And he comes out again and he's, uh, uh, nobody. And what do you mean nobody? There's nobody in there. And the one says, well, are you sure we got the right cell? Yeah, C4. This is it. This is the cell. There's nobody in there. And from the back of the room, of course, one guard offers a helpful suggestion. Did you look under the bed? I looked under the bed. There's nobody there. And then they have to go back and tell the Sanhedrin what's going on. And I can see them as they're walking through the hallways of the prison. They're going back up to where the prison courts are, and they're pushing and shoving. You go first. No, I don't want to go first. You go first. I don't want to go first. Because you know what happens, right? The guy who gets there first has to explain to the Sanhedrin that the prisoners they put in the jail the night before, they can't find them. <laughs> and these guys come into the, the Sanhedrin, they're all standing there, and they're all kind of looking a little sheepish. And the Sanhedrin looks, judge looks down and says, well, where are they? And you can see the one, the one poor guy who got voted to, he has to tell the story of the Sanhedrin. And he looks up at the judge and he says to the judge, this is funny. You're going to laugh when you hear this story. We went there. And look what he says. He says, we found the prison. Now, he doesn't say exactly that, but he says, we found the prison. And you're thinking, yeah. It was right where you left it. And, you know, we found the, the guards standing outside right where we left them. And when we opened the door, well, n nobody. You can just see these guys standing there looking a little sheepish. And the Sanhedrin are hearing this whole story. And the Bible says in verse 24, they were greatly perplexed. There was a sense of absolute frustration and wonderment. What does this mean? What's going on? In the Greek, it literally means, what will this come to? Or what might this be in the end? Where's it all going to finish? And as they're standing there looking to them, the guards are trying to look as inconspicuous as possible. They lost 12 guys overnight. It's not a good thing for them. All of a sudden, somebody comes in. And I want you to notice the words that he uses. The guy that comes in, he says... Uh, look in verse 25. He says, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. There's a tremendous amount of power in those two words, those couple of words, you put in prison. In other words, the guys that you locked up, they're out there preaching. <laughs> and you can almost see the, the guys tell him he's kind of snickering. 
you Sanhedrin, you thought you could lock those guys up. You put them in prison. But you know what? God cannot be outdone. God is still in control of his people. God is still working through these apostles. And the Sanhedrin, as much as they might think that they're in control and they're in charge, they are not. And God shows them, listen, I laugh at your foolish attempts to stop my work. I'm still in control of this situation. And so they go and they get the guys and they bring them and they put them back into the the Sanhedrin. and, And what happens next is that God exalts himself through their words. Notice the next paragraph down from verse 27 down to verse number 32, at the end of verse 32 there. This is when Peter begins to speak. And God works to build his church. God intervenes in the ungodly men's intentions. God laughs at man's futile attempts to stop him. And God also exalts himself through his people's bold words. Notice what Peter says. Listen to the way the implications behind his words. They're powerful. In verse 29 he says, We must obey God rather than man. What's the implication of that? Our allegiance is to God above all earthly allegiances. You know what else he's saying? He's saying your words and God's words are not in agreement. Because now we have a a, a clear decision here. We must obey you and what you're telling us, or we must obey God and what God is telling us, and we choose to obey God. And because these two is a decision, one or the other, Clearly, they're not in agreement. So Peter's saying, listen, you are telling us we must stop preaching, but we must obey God and his words, not you. And so God exalts himself through Peter's words. In the second part of verse 30, he says, you killed Jesus by hanging him on a tree. Jesus, the sinless one, the long-waited-for Messiah, you killed him. God's leader, God's prince, God's savior, you killed him. You're responsible for the death of an innocent man. That was bold words for those men to say, but they're absolutely true. The Romans may have carried out the execution, but the Sanhedrin is responsible for his death. Notice in verse 30, the second part, the God of our fathers raised Jesus. He raised him from the dead. All his words rebuked them. My notes are out of order. All all of Peter's words rebuked them for what they have done. They're enraged. They're angry. From jealousy to greatly perplexed to enraged, there is a blind fury. They're ready to kill the apostles for their words. The problem they've suffered with from the very beginning of this whole situation is the problem of pride. It's the same problem that we all suffer with. Jealousy is fueled by pride. Being confronted with their own sin and failure, pride again rears its ugly head. No doubt, as they're sitting there listening to all of this, Satan begins to whisper in their ears, kill them, get rid of them. Do away with them like you did with Jesus. Get rid of those men. But God is still in control. God is still working. working. Nothing can stop God from working. And again, God intervenes and delivers the apostles from the Sanhedrin. Notice the last paragraph in verses 33 to 42. God delivers through suffering. And Gamaliel stands up and he orders the apostles put aside and he speaks. And God raises the deliverer from an unlikely source. 
Isn't it beautiful the way God does that? He raises up men from the most unlikely source and uses them to accomplish his purposes. He raises up Abraham, a moon worshiper from Ur of the Chaldees, a man who is a bit of a liar as it comes out in the stories. He lies repeatedly to different kings. And God raises him up and uses him. Moses, this fellow they found in a basket that God preserved, and he's raised as a prince in Pharaoh's court, and he goes out and he kills an Egyptian, and then he flees into the night, and for 40 years on the backside of a desert, and God comes and taps him on the shoulder and says, you're the man I'm going to use to lead my people out of Israel. What about Gideon? Unlikely guy. Right? The Midianites have come down in great hordes and they're coming against the people of Israel. And what's Gideon doing? He's hiding down in a wine press with a, like a shovel-like tool and he's threshing wheat down there. It's the worst place to thresh wheat. And God's angel comes and says, uh, you're the great deliverer of the Lord. He calls him a man of God, a mighty warrior. And what is Gideon? He's afraid. He's terrified. God raises up the most unlikely of people to use to deliver his people and to use in the ministry of his word. He raises up Peter, a foot-in-the-mouth fisherman. He raises up Paul, who was one who went around persecuting the church with great vehemence, taking people away, and from what we read in his words, almost certainly putting some of them to death. God chooses the most unlikely. And here's Gamaliel, and he stands up. He's a Pharisee. He is one of those who have argued probably against Jesus and his words all the time that Jesus ministered. He's the most unlikely. And yet God raises him up and he gives two brief examples of risings that have come to nothing. And God raises him up and he speaks and the Sanhedrin is, is calmed and they listen to what he has to say and then they set them free. In case you're wondering, my notes got massively out of order and I'm just trying to put them all back together. My apologies. So what do we do with all this? Let's cut to the chase. We recognize a number of things in all this. Number one, that God is at work. We recognize that God is doing his work through us. We recognize that God is working through us to accomplish the spread of the gospel, not only in this neighborhood, but in neighborhoods around the world. We recognize that God intervenes in his own time and in his own choosing. We recognize that God laughs at the foolish attempts of men. We recognize that nothing can ever stop the course of God building his church Nothing can ever stop God from accomplishing his purposes. We remember that nothing can stop the work of God, not the Sanhedrin, not the Roman occupation, not the great persecutions that came about in the early church and then later church as well, not the heretical teachings that came about in the second and third century, not the Catholicism of the 16th and 17th century that tried in vain to stamp out Reformation, not Nazism in the 20s and 30s and 40s, not fascism, not communism, not even the Islamic State, nor can the government of Australia stamp out Christianity by changing laws and doing silly things like they've done recently. It can never happen. Not the extravagant wealth of Western societies will stamp out Christianity. Not the extreme poverty of third world countries will stamp out Christianity. Not even the radical departure 
of the modern Western church from the historic biblical Christian faith will stamp it out. The gates of hell, Jesus said, will not, will never prevail against Christ's church, which he is building. Remember this. Whatever you face, whatever you encounter, nothing can hinder God from working. Secondly, this. Look around you and see. God is still working. Men and women are still coming to faith in Christ. God still heals the sick. Lives are still being changed. Bibles are still being translated and printed. I was reading about Adoniram Judson, as I mentioned earlier, and thousands of copies of the Bible that he printed in his lifetime back in the 1820s and 30s with very crude instruments and crude printing presses. Nothing like what we have today. And then read about Simon Annie Pyatt, and they're still working to translate and print and make copies of the Bible. It's still going on. God has not stopped working. And in your life, as you look and you see, and you think, wonder if God is still finishing his work. Does it seem like everything's kind of grinding to a halt? The reality is that God is still at work in your life, brother and sister. Look around you and see. The gospel is still being preached. Persecuted and oppressed churches are still the strongest. Unreached people groups are steadily diminishing as the gospel still continues to spread. God still hears the prayers of his people. We serve an exalted, conquering, undefeatable God. Look and see what God is doing and be encouraged. You may not see a lot of growth in your life. Look around. And look to God. Cry out to God that he would continue to grow you. Keep going despite the obstacles that continue to come. The apostles went and stood in the temple courts and they preached the gospel. They preached. I wonder as if they stood there and preached and they could see the Sanhedrin filing past at a distance. I'm wondering if the day would be the day when they would follow Christ all the way to a cross. But they were obedient and they kept going. We serve an exalted, conquering, and undefeatable God. We keep going despite the obstacles that continue to come. We obey God thirdly. It's the only ground of true safety. As they were set free from their prison cell, they immediately went and obeyed exactly what the angel of the Lord told them to do. What gave them boldness? as they stood before the Sanhedrin, was the Spirit of God in them and the fact that they were in obedience to God. They were doing what He was calling them to do. We obey God by going. Notice what He says there. Go and stand and speak. We go first of all. We go to whomever God sends us to. We go wherever God sends us to go. We go to our neighbors. We go to our colleagues colleagues and co-workers. We go to our family members and friends. We go across the street and we go around the world. If you're not sure where it is that God is calling you to go and to work, step out in faith looking for God to lead you. Look and see what he's given to do right in front of you. Look around you. You're on the bus, the train. Look at the people beside you. We were hearing yesterday about a person who was on a bus they went to get off the bus. I think they found a tract, a gospel tract, lying on the bus seat. And they picked up that gospel tract that somebody had left behind. And they started reading and they got saved. 
Going isn't a great, huge thing where you do great things for God. Going is sometimes the simple things of handing someone a gospel tract or opening up a conversation with somebody. It's going wherever God sends us. We obey by going. We obey by standing too. That was an interesting way he, he writes that. We obey by standing firm against what God opposes and what, sorry, we stand firm against what opposes God and is firm. We stand firm in Christ's strength. We stand firm in the knowledge of Christ's victory over Satan. We stand firm in the knowledge of his exaltation as king, as Lord, as Savior, as Christ. We stand firm. So how are you going to stand firm if you don't know the Scriptures? How are you going to stand firm for what God has told us if we don't know what God has told us? And so there's a great encouragement in us. You notice the church in the first description, Acts 2.42, they gave themselves, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to teaching. Later on it describes how they, they're all going out and they're all preaching the gospel. That early church came together. They heard the message of the gospel. They heard the stories of Jesus. They heard the things as the apostles recounted them of all the things that Jesus was preaching and teaching. And they went out well equipped and they stood firm to preach the gospel. It didn't give in. You read the story of the book of Acts and the persecution that comes by the Judaizers against the early church. It's because God raised up men like Paul and Peter, and Luke, and Mark, and Matthew to write their Gospels and communicate the message of the Gospel to them that they were able to stand firm against attacks from all sides. We obey by going. We obey by standing. We obey by speaking. The angel of the Lord said, Speak all the words of this life. When we share the Gospel, we must share all the truth of it. We must never worry about whether or not the listener will respond or not. That indeed is God's department. So if you're here today and don't know Christ, then listen to this. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, just listen to this next part. This is the important part for you. This is for you. We speak of God who created us in His image. We stand and we speak of God who created us to glorify Him and honor Him in everything we do. But we also speak about our own disobedience and the sin that separates us from God. We speak of God's wrath coming against us for our disobedience. But we also speak of God's love and God's grace. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you this clearly. God made you for a purpose. You have disobeyed like every other one of us. But God in love has planned for our salvation. We speak of God's love, sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die. We speak of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, born under the law. We speak of Christ living as truly man and truly God, perfectly obedient. We speak of Christ suffering to pay a debt he did not owe. We speak of Christ and his death and his burial and, of course, his triumphant resurrection. And we call men and women to turn away from sin and turn toward Jesus Christ and follow him. We speak of trusting in Christ to keep his promises to save us. And we speak of Christ's soon return in power and glory. Do you know the Lord Jesus? Do you know the fact that you're a sinner? And that God's judgment will fall. But that God sent a Savior to take away your judgment. To bear it in your place. 
that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He told them to speak all the words of this life. And the last way we obey is this. We obey by rejoicing when suffering comes. I, I always marvel when I read the story. I look down those last couple of verses there. In verse 41, it says, They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You know what that means? They understood more than we do in our generation, in our culture, that to follow Christ is not simply to follow him to gain all the benefits that he can give us. That to follow Christ means to literally step in behind him, pick up the cross, to die to ourselves every day, to be willing to die for him. And as they stood there in that Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin ordered them to be beaten, and they were made to lie down, and they held their hands and their feet at each end, and they laid 39 stripes with rods across their back and their legs. As they got up, they would have been battered and bruised and struggled to walk and in terrible pain. And yet they, they rejoiced. They counted a thing of joy that they were counted worthy to follow Christ and suffer as Christ did, to display Christ's sufferings to a new generation, to a new world. Brothers and sisters, we obey by going. We obey by standing. We obey by speaking. And we obey by rejoicing when suffering comes. God is still at work. You might look around and think the church is being steadily beaten down. The church is being steadily eroded away as governments and laws and policies and persecution seem to be chipping away at it. But the reality is that God is still at work. And when men raise up all kinds of schemes and programs and, and things they can do to try and stop the gospel, the Lord in heaven literally laughs. You won't stop. My gospel, you won't stop the message of salvation from going out around the world. And all that man can do will accomplish nothing in the end. Even now, God is the victor. He has won the battle. We are just proclaiming the message. The battle is won. The war is already over. We serve a great God. We serve a victorious God. God is still at work. Never lose sight of that. All right. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray, and then we'll be done for the morning. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace and your mercy toward us. Father, thank you that you have not finished your work, not in each of us, and not in the church as a whole. Father, give us the wisdom and the grace to look and see the work of God, to consider our own lives and see where we've come and how far we've come in the last year, and to see the work that you're doing in each of us and to see it in each other. Father, we pray that you would strengthen our resolve, that we would follow the command of the Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations, to go and stand and speak all the words of this life. Father, as we make plans to go and take the gospel into Noble Park again this year, Father, we pray that you would go ahead of us, that you would open the eyes of men and women, open the ears of their hearts, that they would hear the message of the gospel and that they would believe. Father, we pray. 
that you would continue your work through us. Father, we rejoice knowing that you who began a good work in us will not, will not stop until it's finished. Father, we thank you that in a day to come, the work will be finished in each of us and the work will be finished that the church has been given to do. And the Lord Jesus will come and he will separate sheep from goats. And Father, we pray. We pray, O oh God, for our friends and our neighbors and our family that they might be separated with us as part of Christ's people because the message of the gospel has reached them. That you have used us to, to spread the message to those who still haven't heard that they might hear and believe. Father, we thank you that you are continuing your work. Father, we thank you that no gate of hell, no scheme of man raised against the gospel will stand and prosper. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, O oh God, that we've had the freedom to come and worship together. Father, we pray that you would receive the thoughts and meditations of our hearts and our lips as pleasing in your sight. Father, we ask you for your blessing. Lord, again, as we think about this evening, and Peter and Cameron, as they will come and share, Father, we pray that you would be them with them and encourage them and strengthen them throughout the afternoon, that they would be able to stand in simple, clear speech, communicate what you've laid on their hearts. Father, we ask you these things, giving thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.